If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado runs through his top 10 games that did not crack the top 3,000. Which, I know, is a very odd-sounding subject. I, 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 I make no apologies for it. And what's more... I'm not even going to explain at this point why I am doing that list this month. You will have to bear with me. And when we get to about the halfway mark of this top 10 countdown, things will start making sense why I have chosen this particular topic. Uh, But for now, what do I mean by the top 3,000? Well, as you might guess, I'm talking about BoardGameGeek, which has a database of something like 120,000 board games that they have got that you can look up. And every single one of them has a rating based on user rankings. And of those 120,000, there are many, many, many wonderful works of board game art that I think are fantastic, but have somehow fallen between the cracks because the denizens of Board Game Geek have not rated them high enough for them to make it into the top 3,000 of that website. And I know 3,000 is a very weird, arbitrary number. Again, it will make more sense uh, when we get to about the halfway mark. I promise. Um, But for now, just take this as me taking the opportunity to talk about 10 games that I think are wonderful and should really get a lot more attention, but they've just not really uh, caught fire. And so they didn't make the Board Game Geek's top 3,000. Right. Okay. So, oh, one thing I should add to that, though. These are uh, games that have come out no uh, no later than 2018. So these are 2018 earlier because, uh, you know, if they were more, if they've, if it's come on the market within the last year or two, chances are it might still make it. They're still working their way up. But by the time, a, by the time the game's been out for a couple of years, <clears throat> it's pretty much settled where it's going to settle on the Board Game Geek rankings. So that's why 2018 and earlier, these games, even though they're fantastic, I would argue these should be in the top 500, many of them in the top 100, none of them are in the top 3,000. Okay, make sense? Right. Well, thank you for your patience, and let's start with my number 10, Mercado, which is a fantastic bag-building game, um, sort of, from uh, Rudiger Dorn, uh, you know, who is a very well-respected designer, and he's got some big mega-hits like Goa and uh, Istanbul, I think, if I recall correctly. But anyway, uh, Mercado is a more recent one of his designs, and it just hasn't really caught fire. And it's a shame, because this is a brilliant game. This is kind of a worker placement slash auction game, because players are putting their chips on the outskirts of these different tiles and basically bidding each other up. It's like a slow-moving auction where there are several different things available for bid. And um, you you can see what I'm trying to work my way up, and you're trying to work uh, you know, push me up on that bid, or if you abandon that to try to grab something else that's available, then you've left that for me, and on a future turn, I'll be able to claim that. This is not the first game that's done this kind of multiple simultaneous auctions, but what's brilliant about Mercado is 
the victory point track. Because what happens is, when I do end up winning one of these tiles and scoring it, and they score in different ways with set collection and all kinds of stuff, the I will move forward on the victory point track. I am always trying to target specific amounts of victory points. Because there might be a situation where, wow, I could actually get that tile, and it would get me six points. But that means I will skip... Oh, if I could score four victory points right now, then I would land on this spot of the victory point tracker and I would get a big bonus. So while I could get this nice windfall of six points, I don't want it. And so the timing that comes into play as you are trying to juggle all these different simultaneous auctions going on, trying to hit win certain targets to be able to hit certain victory point targets. And every time, if I do hit that four point, then next up, I got to score a three pointer. And then I want to score a six pointer. But what if I score the six pointer now? and I skip the four-pointer and make it impossible to get the three-pointer. This extra level of complexity is just brilliant. It's really simple and elegant to keep track of. And I love it. In the only other game I've ever seen it, in Carcassonne the Castle, which for my money is the best Carcassonne on the market because it also does this, where, you know, this is a game where often, most games, you want to go for big super scores. In games like this, you want to target very specific incremental scores. And that could definitely affect everything about how you go about playing the rest of the game. It's brilliant. I wish I could see it in more games. I love it in Cast on the Castle, and I love it in my number 10, Mercado. But let's move on to number 9, Xion. And this is from an up-and-coming designer. I think it's a Francesco Testini, I believe. Yeah, it's right there. I love it so much, it's on my wall. You can see it right over there. It's such a great game. And, oh man, this... This is a brilliant euro, all about uh, players working to contribute towards the construction of the famous Terracotta army. And we're you know trying to gather clay to be able to make the statues, uh, you know, and and grab the best spots in the pit where the Terracotta army exists. But we're also trying to make uh, weapons and accoutrement that we can put on the statues and all of that, all to score points. So that's all pretty straightforward. It's a neat theme, but still, um, what really makes this game special is uh, every other round we draw four cards, and on my turn I'm going to take two of those four cards and reveal them. We all play, choose and play simultaneously. The cards all have a special power, and they have an initiative speed. Think Gloomhaven. Uh, That's what I love about this game, because I've got these four cards, and generally speaking, the more powerful the card is, so I want to play this card because it gives me a really great special effect to help me complete all my objectives, it also has a really good initiative speed on it. And um, so... I am sacrificing my opportunity to go first, potentially. Because if I play a fast card that will let me go first in the main round... Because I forgot to say, I play two cards. One of the cards will be played for the effect it has. The other one will be played for its initiative. So if I play a really powerful card, I want it to be accompanied by a fast card. But what if all my other cards are really low initiative? Um, you know, So am I going to use them for weak powers or for fast initiative? The juggling of this fundamental decision is brilliant. And like I said, you get four cards. After I've played two in one round, the other two cards are what I must play in the next round. And so the choices I make in round one really limit me in round two. And then the choices I make in round three limit me in round four. And so you're constantly feeling this 
vice around you as you're trying to figure out how best to use these cards, but you put yourself in the vice, and I love that. Um, and now also, the other thing that's really special about this game is it's ultimately, the you know, once we've chosen our cards, one which tells us our, the player order, how fast we are, and the other one tells us what we get to do, it's a worker placement game. But this is a game with only four worker placement spots. So being able to go first and grabbing the best worker placement spot is so crucial. But generally, that means if you're using your best cards to go fast, that means you are playing your worst cards for bonus actions. It's super sharp. The miniatures, I should say, by the way, for the Terracotta Army, they are really, really cool looking. I have seen some people online paint them and they look gorgeous. But to me, I mean, that makes real sense that, you know, they, they just have this kind of clay look because it's the Terracotta Army. It's a very, very sharp, clever game. Jen and I were grinning ear to ear when we play it because it just puts you through such tight ringers of tough, tough decisions and constantly making compromises and constantly trying to one-up your opponent because, again, with only four worker placement spots and one of them is always marked by, a, I forget, a, a visiting dignitary. So everybody wants to go for that, but if you can't get it, do you go somewhere else? Um, and also, this game borrows an idea kind of from Stefan Feld's In the Year of the Dragon because those four worker placement spots are broken into two discrete um, bundles. And each bundle can only hold so many workers. So even if I can't get the best one, um, I know you might want to go for this, and I might choose an action basically to fill up that bundle, which cuts off the other worker placement spot. There is so much going on in Xion. It's a crying shame that it does not crack the top 3,000, because it is absolutely brilliant. Um, and it's my number nine, Xion. Then we go on to number eight, The Boldest, from Sophia Wagner, I believe, who is another up-and-coming new designer. And this game is so sharp. I love the, the presentation and the theme. This is basically one of those far-flung futures where humanity has kind of regressed and doesn't really understand the technology of the old world and all of that. And so basically every player is in charge of a village, and you've got a uh, handful of cards that represent all your villagers who have different strengths, whether they are hunters, or mechanics who can, or engineers who can figure out the ancient technology, or or whether they're cooks who basically just provide for the village or whatnot. Um, but the thing about this game is every round. Well, again, we've got a handful of cards, and we have to lock some in. This is a programming game. There's going to be um, two missions, a, a first mission and a second mission, and we have to decide simultaneously in secret what what members of our village we are going to send out for each potential mission. And so we've got to combine them with other ones, um, and we, we, we can actually supplement them with like uh, animal uh, pets, kind of like spirit guides, except they're real animals, because this is a far-flung future where um, you know we work more closely with our, with, with our animal helpers. And um, everything about this game is looking at the current layout of tiles that are available in the wilderness. Because we are setting up missions that will go out into the wilderness to grab these tiles. And um, you know, not all tiles are created equal, and sometimes they're very valuable uh, for certain players. Sometimes they're not. And trying to figure out, who do I send? When do I go? Um, am I going to be able to get first dibs? Because again, like the Xi'an, initiative plays a huge part. And everybody has to do all 
all this programming um, for multiple adventuring parties, and then we start revealing them one at a time and uh, see who actually gets the goods that are out there in the wilderness, fights the monsters, all that kind of stuff. It's a very, very clever game. Great presentation. And again, just really tense and interesting decisions uh, because of all the simultaneous play programming stuff. I can't believe this didn't do better, but, you know, c'est la vie. Uh, It did not quite crack the uh, upper echelon, but I think it should have. It's my number eight, the boldest. And, oh, by the way, I should say, everything I'm talking about today, if you want to know more about it, just go check out my run-through, because I've covered all these things. That's how I know they're so awesome. And uh, don't take my word for it. Check out the run-through and decide for yourself if it's worth seeking these games out. Anyway, that's eight, the boldest. Then we go on. To number seven, oh, Capo de Copy. Uh, this is my first game I'm going to be talking about from designer Steve Finn of Dr. Finn Games. Uh, I love his work. And, you know, Dr. Finn had a huge monster hit early on in his career with Biblios. And ever since then, he's been a small self-published indie type of guy who is just put you know coming up with great design after great design great design running small modest kickstarters and you know you know and just putting out great game after great game in fact actually there he's got a great kickstarter running right now for a four pack collection of some of his coolest designs he's done some new ones and some revamps of old ones um I've got a video for that uh, you can go check it out in fact what the heck I'll go ahead and put in an eye up there in the top right corner of the screen. If you want to see some more of Dr. Finn stuff, you can get right now. But for now, let's talk about my number seven, Capo de Copy, which is a two-player only area control game um, with push-your-luck dice driving it. Every, when it's your turn, you're going to roll dice, a black die and a white die, and one of the dice determines what region you can... Um, you know, exert your influence on because we're prohibition era mobsters, and the other die uh, indicates how much influence. And so you've got to decide well, which die is going to be for which. Uh, you know, and if you roll doubles, that can create special events, and there's all kinds of really cool special powers. It's an incredibly sharp game, and I got to say, this is one of the smartest push your luck games I've ever seen. Because push your luck, generally speaking, if you're talking about, you know, uh, what's it like ink and gold, Diamant type stuff, they're usually pretty simple affairs. Um, you, know, you know, it's pretty simple to decide. You're doing really simple actions. This game's got a lot going on. So you are still, at core, just pushing your luck. I, I, should I go one more round? Okay, I, I, you know, I've, got, I've got the favor of the mayor. I think that'll get me out of trouble if I keep pushing my luck. But it can all blow up in your face. And, oh, I love it. Um, you know, I don't think I don't know if there are many push your luck games I really uh, you know go that hard for. And again, what separates Copa to Copy from so many other ones out there is it has so much more going on. It is a surprisingly deep game, like all of Steve Finn's games. Uh, you know, it's a lot of game in a very small, tight, fast playing package, and it's just a lot of fun. I mean, it's really saying something that Jen enjoys it, and she hates Prohibition era mobster or really any kind of criminality simulations, but she loves this one enough to play it too. It's my number seven, Capo de Copy. Then we go on to my number six, Institute of Magical Arts. I said I wasn't done with Steve Finn. We are back with another um, two-player sitting on opposite sides of a battle line, dueling it out for area control. In the Capo de Copy, it was Prohibition era, you know, trying to grab control of speakeasies and the mayor's office and stuff like that. Now, we are professors in a Hogwarts-esque magic school, trying to exert our influence over the other professors and, you know, trying to get control of artifacts so we can be 
become the new headmaster, basically. Um, it's a real shame this game doesn't have a Harry Potter theme because it would fit so perfectly. But what's interesting about this game is this is another one where every round, uh, what we're going to do is we are trying to exert influence over this central line, this battle line, if you will is uh, dice-driven. But in this game, everybody rolls their dice. You get a whole bunch of dice. You roll them, and you everybody can see what I rolled. I rolled a couple of twos, and a three, and a couple of sixes. Now, um, you don't know what I'm going to do with those dice, because I also have a hand of cards. And what I'm going to do is, you can see all my dice, and I start playing different cards face down to my different dice. Does that mean uh, my six over there? Did I play the card that actually allows me to exert six influence out into the world? Did I play the card that lets me gather more stuff? Did I... You know, what am I doing? Uh, you can see how I'm laying all my cards out. I can see how you're laying all your cards out on your card. I mean, uh, you know, that six could mean, oh, I'm going to try try to grab card number six on the line, or I'm going to try to get six more... Um, uh, I forget what they're called. Influence tokens or stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and there's special cards that do special things. It is a very, very sharp game. And as we start gathering these cards, they give us special powers to do even more stuff with the dice in area control. Uh, this game has tons of replayability because there are so many interesting artifacts and special powers and all of that. And the interesting thing is, uh, this game is... You know, it came out a few years ago. It's actually, like I said, Steve Finn, amongst other things, is known for revisiting his designs and coming up with very cool 2.0 versions of it. And he's doing that. Oh, sorry. Um... Uh, there's a new version of this uh, called School of Magic. And it's the same core idea, revamped art, so it looks nicer than it did, and it's available, because Institute of Magical Arts has, I think, been kind of hard to get for a while. It's only just now coming out, and I'm planning on trying to cover it pretty soon. I'm really excited about it, because it still has the same core, really tense, everybody... That's it's interesting. This is a lot of uh, games I'm talking about that I love that are all about secret, simultaneous selection of actions and everybody reveal, which is one of my favorite things in the, in the universe. Um, and so, uh, was it the uh, School of Magic Arts? Oh boy, I need to look that up now. Um, what is the name of it? Uh, right, so I'm going to look up Institute. I should have looked this up when I had my little glitch there. Institute for Magical Arts has been re-implemented as School of Sorcery, I bet. Is that what it is? Come on, Board Game Geek, give it to me. Uh, yeah, School of Sorcery. So, if you're having a hard time finding Institute of Magical Arts, try to seek out School of Sorcery. Or wait for it, and I'll probably be covering it in a uh, in a roundup pretty soon anyway. But that was my number six, the Institute of Magical Arts from Steve Finn. And now we're halfway through. And I remember I promised up front that I was going to explain myself. What is going on here? Well, if you want to know what my number five through my number one on this list is, you need to go to check out a link in the show notes. Or I'll put an I right there right now to a recent video I did with Ruel Gaviola. And if you're a longtime fan of the show, you might have seen last month, Ruel and I did a top 10 list together. It was great. It was top 10 co-op games. And everybody said, oh, this was so great. You should get together and do something more with Ruel. And here's the thing. Ruel does a weekly show on his Twitch channel called 3 at 3, where he brings somebody on, talks to him for a while, and then they go through a top 3 countdown. 
And I said, hey, I'd be happy to do it. And my, and my fans have definitely said we should do more stuff together. So you came on my top 10 show. How about I come on your three at three show? And he said, that'd be great. What's our topic going to be? And my first thought was, well, he had some suggestions that honestly I didn't like. Um, but I always like taking the opportunity to talk about games that have slipped between the cracks, have flown under the radar. And since he's got the three at three, and I love alliteration, Rado runs. I mean, of course, I, I love that. How about the three at three, 3,000? You know, because again, that's where the three comes from. The, th the games that could not crack the 3,000. He said, I love it. So, um, but you're saying, but wait a minute, I've only done um, 10 through six. Here's the deal. In every one of Ruel's three at threes, there's always a couple of honorary mentions, uh, honorable mentions. And those are really like your number four and five. So folks, here's the deal. If you would like to hear the rest of this video and hear of uh, several games, uh, I was really surprised by some of the stuff Ruel came up with, some really good suggestions. Uh, again, hit that I in the top right corner screen or follow the link in the show note to go uh, check out this list continuing. And you'll get to hear a little bit of back and forth between me and Ruel. Uh, we do this for about a half an hour up front, talking about making videos. And you know, my history with Rado runs through and various and sundry topics, and then we will continue the countdown. Although, when you get to his video, if you want, there's a link in his show notes that will skip the Q&A interview section and continue this countdown directly. Right. Okay. I told you it would make sense. I promise. And with that, I am going to leave us here with a cliffhanger. And if you want numbers five through run of my top um, games that did not crack the 3,000. Again, hit that I. Follow the links down in the show notes in 5, a 4, a 3, a 2, a 1.